Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Jamal Green, the author of How Rights Went Wrong Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. He's a constitutional law professor at Columbia University and is on the Oversight Board, an independent body that reviews Facebook and Instagram's decisions on content. Thanks so much for being here, Professor Green. Thank you for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. I have the right to make that donation. I have the right to do this podcast. I have the right to sit here and talk to you. I have the right to write. You have the right to listen. You have the right to eat food, to sleep, to pick the kind of headphones you want or no headphones at all. You also probably may have the right to buy a gun, to drive a car, to have an abortion. But Professor Green argues that the way those rights are given has gone haywire. We're going to ask why he believes that. But first, I want to ask the professor to define the term. What does the word right mean? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and you started with a description of a, of a kind of wide range of um, interests and commitments that um, people often talk about in terms of rights. And often when constitutional lawyers, people who've been trained to um, in the U.S. constitutional system, when they hear that question, the kinds of what they think about is, well, what has the court said is fundamental? And that's a, that's a term of art, right? It's not you know, what fundamental means to you might be different than what it means to me, but, but the court has felt the need to, to specially define the kinds of interests that count as rights and the ones that don't. And there's some disagreement on the court about how you find those things. If you asked uh, Clarence Thomas or Neil Gorsuch, they would say you look at what the framer, how the framers understood, what the framers understood to be rights. If you were to ask uh, a, a Sonia Sotomayor or a, or a Stephen Breyer, they would say something different, relying on a different tradition. But these are like legalistic questions about, you know, what is the, how do we interpret the Constitution to to decide our rights? But as you say, the the layperson, right, thinks about rights in in all all sorts of ways. So part of the Part of the point of the book and part of the reason I, I wanted to write it is uh, to try to explore that mismatch between how we think about rights and what courts say about our rights and indeed to lament the fact that courts feel the need to, to um, legalize and to make abstract questions of rights when I, so I, when I, when I think a lay, you know, when a lay person says, um, I have a right to something, what they mean is this thing is really important to me. Um, that might be different from what a philosopher would say a right is. And I'm not really that interested in that question. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested in that question because as a lawyer, you know, when courts decide these kinds of questions, they are bringing the violence of the state, the coercive power of the state to bear on some conflict that we have between each other or between us and the government. And when they do that, the stakes are really high 
in deciding something is or is not a right. And I think the way we go about doing that is totally inadequate to the justice of, uh, of the rights conflicts that we have with one another. So to you, the word right means something that is important to me, and it doesn't really matter why it's important to me, right? <laughs> right? I have the right to, to feel this way and to do the thing that matters to me. For the purposes of courts, I think that's right. Um, and I think that's right, because, at least U.S. courts. So we, our constitution, you can imagine a constitution, right, that, that listed every single possible right you could have, right? Long, long book, right? Yeah, long, long, long. So it's got the right to wear headphones and the right to not wear headphones. <laughs> it's got everything there. And you've got 10,000 rights and it's written down. That's, it's not impossible to imagine, you know, writing a legal document that does that. Our constitution is the opposite of that. Um, and I, I say that even in relation to other constitutions around the world. We have the second shortest constitution in the world um, behind Monaco's and it's really old. And the things that we associate with constitutional rights are, are stated in very vague terms, right? So if I look at a very, very vague term that says you've got the right to liberty, you've got the right to life, or you've got the right to, to, to be treated equally, um, that doesn't tell me very much about whether I have a, the right to wear headphones or a mask, right? Um, or not wear a mask, let's say. In, in right. And where does, and then the question is, where does equality start and inequality begin? Yeah. And, equal and we, as, as to what, right? I mean. Right, right, right. And, and we, um, and we are going to talk about one of the cases you brought up in, in San Antonio with, with the school system there, um, in Texas with the school system there. But before we get to that, I want to ask how rights in America are given where do they come from? Where do I have, why do I have the right to do this podcast um, or anything else that I do during the day? Uh, you say in the book that contrary to popular opinion, rights are not about protecting the minority, but about protecting the majority from themselves. What did the founders intend the constitution and the bill of rights to be? Um, and before you answer, I, I, I guess I shouldn't have done it this way, but th there was this quote in the book that stuck out. The Constitution is for everyone but the angels. Well, tell me, what does all that mean? So, so the, the, the Constitution is for everyone but the angels is a, a, a reference, to, a, a, an implicit reference to something James Madison says where he, um, in the 18th century where he says that if, if, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government, right? We need government to regulate our behavior. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so in saying rights are for everyone but the angels, rights are a way of managing, of, of recognizing um, disparate interests that we have, right? So the reason why we have rights disputes, right, isn't because some of us are angels and the rest of us are devils and the angels are constantly being abused by the devils, right? It's because we're all human. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we live in a society in which we have very different values and very different commitments from one another. And they come into conflict because when you live in a community, they come into conflict, right? So the question is, how do you resolve those conflicts? What are the, what are the mechanisms of conflict resolution? And so when you say, just getting back to your first, your first yeah, question. I about did too what, much there, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, th but these are, these are related to each other, right? You say, when you say, um, uh, where do rights where do rights come from and how do the founders associate you know, was it, is it about minorities or majorities it's about both right it's about both minorities and majorities we have a kind of received wisdom about rights that 
you know, majorities pass laws and then individuals have rights and those individuals have, have, have rights against the majority, right? There's an antagonism between governance by majority and individual rights to do things. And that the reason we have judges is because they're not majoritarian and they go and protect those individual rights, right? That's a very common understanding of Amer the American system of rights, but it's, it's wildly oversimplified because the ways in which people protect rights are sometimes by going to judges uh, and getting judges to, to decide things. But most of the time you protect your rights by passing laws, right? So if you think you um, have a right to personal security, you pass laws that you might pass a gun control measure, or if you think you have a right to um, not be the victim of, of, uh, of a pandemic, you might pass a law that says, please wear, you know, you've got to wear a mask when you go outside. Um, if you believe that people have rights to equality, you might pass laws that protect those rights specifically and say businesses or other institutions have to treat people equally. So people pursue their rights through courts sometimes, but also through governance. And the founders actually understood that really, really well. Um, and when you look back at the, you, know, you look back at the Declaration of Independence, which I get thrown at me a lot of times um, in relation to this the book's argument, you know, what about those unalienable rights to, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Well, you know, the, the next line of the Declaration of Independence doesn't say, and, and, and to protect those rights, we have federal judges and federal courts who will protect us from the British, right? No, the, the courts then were part, were, were part and parcel of the crown, right? So the next line says, and that's why governments are instituted um, in order to protect those rights. And the American project is a project of self-government. It's not a project of individual rights. And you said something interesting also there. You said, if you want security, you might pass a, a bill that would, that would, or pass a, a law that says we would have gun control. But there are going to be plenty of people who say, and quite loudly, well, I want security. I'm going to pass the opposite of Absolutely. gun control. Absolutely. And that's called democracy, right? We disagree about how to pursue our ends, right? But we're, we're often trying to pursue the same end, but in different, um, in different ways. Um, or, or we just disagree, right? And when you disagree, you um, get together, you talk about it, you figure out a law that you can both live with. And that's ordinary politics. We have, we have outsourced in so many areas, ordinary politics to things that courts will declare, right? So instead of, so instead of, so I think that more guns means more safety and you think more guns means less safety. Well, let's figure out, you know, what do we think about universal background checks? What do, we th what do we think about concealed carry? What do we think the licensing requirements should be? Let's have conversations about those. That's how, that's how you, you engage in politics. But the alternative to that is if I think I can go to a court and the court's gonna say, no, actually, you know, gun rights are more important than whatever law might be passed. Or if the court's gonna say the opposite of that, uh, that's gonna make us run to court and try to get us to, Get, you know, win our, win our position and get a total victory if we can out of the court rather than talk to each other. And you say there's too much asking of who holds a right as opposed to what holding a right means. One of the things you argue is that we are far too dependent on courts to arbitrate rights, and this is what you were just saying, and that it should be done more so by the political process. But why do you argue that, especially when our political process seems incredibly broken? 
so our, our political process is certainly broken. And I'll, I'll, say, I'll say a couple of things about that. Um, one is that there is an interaction between what I think courts do in respect to our rights and the ways in which our political process is broken. Right, so um, I don't think that anything in this book is going to completely uh, or even mostly cure the problems with our politics, but because uh, they're just they just run too deep and they have too many causes. But judges are not helping; they're they're hurting um, because uh, what we actually what we actually need is um, incentives to get in a room together and work things out. I mean, you see this; you certainly see this in. Uh, in Congress, uh, for example, where you have the filibuster and the they're government. trying in the Senate right now. So. Yeah, I mean, you've got you've got, you know, right now the Republicans are saying, you know, filibuster is the only reason there's ever going to be compromise. And it's like, well, no, it's not going to be compromised because um, because people don't actually compromise. Um, right. And so the filibuster just makes it harder to, to do things. Um, uh, and so uh, you know, going back to the gun control example, just as a and I could give a similar example in lots of different areas. Uh, if we think that the role of courts is to decide our rights issues for us and to award total victory to one side or the other, we're going to go to courts instead of having political conversation. But the other, the other thing I'll say, and this is an important point about what I mean by politics, is our electoral politics are, are broken in various ways. But, but when I say politics, I, I really mean a, a political culture and the, the way in which, the way and the places in which politics happen is not just in Congress or not just in legislatures. And it's also something the framers understood. Um, it's, in, uh, it's, it's in the public square, it's on social media, it's um, on your, your kid's sports team, um, it's in places of worship, uh, it's in uh, other ways in which we interact with one another and have conversations about things that we differ about. Um, and that's, it's in the, you know, for them, it was the jury, um, which was a hugely important institution of self-government, where you work out the limits of your rights. At what point does the state intervening become reasonable is, is, this, is the classic jury question. Now, juries don't play the same role today that they did back then. But, but the point is that politics is, uh, is a process of working out disagreement and, and moving forward. And there's sort of high politics and legislative politics, but there's also uh, much more mundane political interactions we have with each other that we need to re recover and, 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 and rehabilitate that political culture. Another argument that your book makes, and this is in some ways the um, sort of watershed moment um, and watershed idea in the whole book is over the 14th Amendment. Um, you say it didn't take long for judges to forget the people, the Reconstruction Amendments, that would be the 13th, 14th, and 15th, were made for, um, and that the judges then put those rights to other uses, and that that fateful choice haunts us today. So um, explain, of course, the 14th Amendment um, is the right to equal protection, but explain how the right to equal protection under the law was intended and how it wound up. So, so in order to talk about this, I think I need to go a little bit further back to the founding and, and what was wrong with the founding. So I've said some things about what was right about it, which is that they very well understood that rights are consistent with and are in fact effectuated through self-government. And 
um, the Bill of Rights, uh, which we associate with kind of radical individualism, was not how the framers understood the Bill of Rights. They understood it as a, a means of protecting local institutions of governance. But of course, that doesn't, you know, that, that works fine if you actually include people in governance. <laughs> um, but if you, if, if you, if government means governments of, government of, you know, propertyed white men um, and not others, and, and especially if part of government means actually terrorizing um, people who are not included. Um, that's, a, that's obviously an illegitimate form of government. Um, but the fact that self-government is the way you figure out your rights, that, that's fine. Um, but the problem is inclusion. The problem is genuine pluralism um, and genuine democracy. So 14th Amendment, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, the amendments that are passed right after the Civil War, are designed to um, to try to include people who were excluded before. So to include them within civil society. Uh, and, and, and there's a recognition that rights actually do sometimes need to be protected by judges and be protected for minorities and be protected against majorities, right? The 14th Amendment is a very, is a very strong reminder in the Civil War, certainly a strong reminder that majorities are, are not always looking out for the interests of minorities. So you, sometimes you need that but what happens instead is those rights are kind of repurposed. The individual rights to equality, to certain substantive rights that you have against state governments um, that are instituted in the 14th Amendment are repurposed to help businesses and particularly to help them avoid um, health, safety, and labor regulation um, and to um, avoid um, collective bargaining requirements and unionization. Um, this is the Industrial Revolution um, at this point, right? So. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of political contestation around the respective rights of workers and businesses. And there are populist movements that are helping um, and, um, and helping unions and helping workers and um, attending to their interests. And then you've got interests on the other side that end up kind of capturing the courts and we end up using the 14th Amendment to protect those interests. One of the things you say in the book that kind of knocked my socks off was rights in America has to account for race in America, that, um, that it has to be rationed, that there was this feeling that we had to ration the rights surrounding racial equality. Explain what you mean by that. So, so and this is really a, a, a continuation of, the, sto of the, the, the story of rights being, you know, um, 14th Amendment rights being repurposed for corporate interests. There's a recognition by the middle of the 20th century that that's a mistake. Um, and that um, there are real serious rights violations happening in the United States in the middle of the 20th century, um, uh, in, the, in the Jim Crow South in particular, right? So there is a, a, a use and a powerful and important use for the 14th Amendment in the, in, in the way in which black Americans in particular are being treated. So that when you've got a pathological abusive government, yeah, you need strong rights and you might need judges to step in. But the mistake that I think we've made, um, or one of the mistakes that, that I think we've made, is that we associate the, the having of rights with abusive pathological government. What would right? be an example of that? So... Brown versus Board of Education, right? The most famous, maybe maybe the most famous case the court has ever decided where it says there, there's no race, racial segregation of public schools is unconstitutional. Well, that's the, that is the, 
the seed of the modern American rights tradition is you, minorities protected by judges against abusive, oppressive government that's trying to, it's actually stomping on their rights and isn't respecting them at all. If you think that, so what's wrong with Brown, right, is a question you might ask. And I think that we, the, the answer that courts are implicitly give today, and that I think a lot of Americans, so people's rights were violated, is the problem with Brown. Um, and you have a right against discrimination, uh, against um, non-discrimination, you have a right to not be discriminated against uh, on the basis of race. And um, rights are, are, have to be protected, right? Rights you know, have to be strongly protected. Uh, and then when you get to the 1960s and 1970s, when the kinds of rights people are asserting are not rights to be, um, to, to, to have access to, to a bathroom or you know, to, to, to have access to the vote, right? They're, we're not talking about, uh, we're not just talking about Jim Crow anymore in the 1960s and 1970s. We're talking about a range of freedom of speech rights that we wouldn't have even thought of as rights prior to the 1960s, burning your draft card or, um, or pornography or um, speech on, on a campus, for example, uh, birth control, sexual revolution, abortion, rights of women in various ways, affirmative action rights in various rights to government welfare in various. So these are complicated questions of who has the right and how far does the right go. And, um, but because we associate our rights tradition with abuse by the government, we kind of assimilate all of those kinds of questions, all of the the heartland of a rights question, we assimilate to, well, is this the kind of situation where we have to think about rights in the very strong ways we did in the civil rights movement? Or is it not? In which case we basically give deference to the government. Uh, uh, and that doesn't work in a complex pluralistic world, right? That might work in a world in which the only rights, the, the only rights issues that come up are the Jim Crow South. Uh, and that's, you know, so, so of course you've got to have really strong rights in that situation, but that's not most, that's not most of governance, right? Most of governance is the government trying to pursue some objective. Maybe someone claims a right because they think that they've um, uh, lost out in the political process in some way. Um, they uh, believe that there's something really important to them, but but you know, governance is also of constitutional significance is really the point here, right? So you've got two things that are in tension with each other that are both protected constitutionally. The right of Southern states to oppress black citizens is not protected constitutionally. And so this is the point, I don't, I don't wanna filibuster too long, but the point is- You have a right to do that though. I, I do, yeah, <laughs> free speech, right? Um, the, 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 the point is that um, the problem with Brown, you know, the problem in Brown versus Board of Education is that the state was a white supremacist state, right? And so they didn't deserve any deference at all um, because they weren't a legitimate government. The problem in Brown isn't that we didn't take rights seriously enough, right? That, so, that, so when you get to most modern rights conflicts, the government is not illegitimate, they may be going too far. They may be ham-handed. They may be they may be doing something wrong, 
but but we can't conflate the role of a judge in relation to a, a totally illegitimate oppressive government versus the role of a judge in an ordinary rights dispute. And you use the word tension there in answering that question. Um, and one of the things that you argue in the book is that the approach the courts have taken leads us to view one another in the worst possible light. It sets up this sort of steel cage match when there's a big decision that comes down. Um, there's a lot about baking cakes in the book, and I, I love that about But uh, instead of seeking common ground, for instance, we compare a baker who won't bake a cake for a couple who is gay to segregationists. The couple who wants the cake is then compared to a tyrant, and this is all over a cake. Why do you argue that those framings of the argument over the baking the cake and the right to, to, to purchase the cake is unhelpful? Yeah, so, if, so I'll say something abstract and then I'll say something very specific about, about cakes, right? So the, the abstract thing I'll say is that if I believe that the way that I get rights is by comparing my rights to the rights of blacks in the Jim Crow South, um, then you're going to get a lot of situations in which so you, you go to a lawyer, I'm trained as a lawyer, and you come and tell me the way I win is, to, is if my right is like blacks in the Jim Crow South. And I'm going to say, well, well, what are the ways in which the person on the other side is like a segregationist? Right? So this is a, this is a really polarizing, really destructive frame. <laughs> for thinking about ordinary conflict, right? If we're talking about the Jim Crow South, then it's different, but if we're talking about ordinary conflict. So, so, so come, come, come now to the bake shop and a, a baker, this is a, a fairly well-known case from a few years ago where the, a baker in Colorado uh, refuses to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. He, he's a very kind of artisanal baker and he bakes these kind of fancy wedding cakes. And a couple comes along and wants a cake and he refuses. And Colorado has a law that says you can't discriminate if you're a business, you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. They raise a complaint with the Civil Rights Commission of Colorado. It then eventually gets to, and they win, eventually gets to the Supreme Court. But what was, I'm sorry to cut you off, but what was, yeah, so, no, what was so interesting was that the baker said, I will sell this cake to anyone. I just won't make it for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was willing to sell an off the rack cake to them. To, to them. Right. Um, uh, right. And he actually would have sold them a cake for other reasons, right? So if they said, I want a cake for my birthday, he would have been fine with that. And this is really important, right? Because this is what makes him, however you think the case should have come out, and I think it's a hard case, but however you think the case should come out, he's not the same as someone who puts up a whites only sign in their window, which is how he was characterized, both by the litigants and by the judges deciding the case on, on the couple's side, and uh, and by amicus brief submitted, and by the public discourse around the case, like this is but just so, like. If so why, go ahead. But, but why isn't he the same? Explain in your view why he's not the same. Isn't this akin to putting up a sign that says "straights only"? Well, that's the so. I, I think that is part of the question, right? Because the Colorado law says you can't do that, right? You can't do what, and so that's that's the way in which you're going to argue the case. But so, so, we, so we should ask him that question, right? Because um, he said, actually, I don't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. 
And uh, I actually think I'm not allowed to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. That was his, he, he agreed with that proposition. And he said, the only thing is, I think that um, baking a cake for a same-sex wedding is the equivalent of participating in the wedding. And so there are certain things I wouldn't put on a cake, right? So I would never put, I hate gays on a cake, for example, he says that. Um, uh, and so if someone came to, my, to my, my, my shop and said, put that on my cake, I would refuse, right? So, so he's taking a very particular position, which is that, which is that he doesn't do cakes that um, endorse positions that he disagrees with. The couple, so let's get to the couple's side, right? The couple agreed with him that he doesn't have to bake a cake uh, that endorses a position that he disagrees with. They agreed with that proposition. So this is actually like a pretty narrow dispute. Again, we can disagree, we can agree or disagree about how it should have come out. But this is a, the question in the case is, does refusal to bake cakes for a same-sex wedding count as discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation? Because if it were an opposite sex wedding, you would have baked that cake, right? Or does it count as ideological opposition? Because he would have not baked the cake no matter who the customer was, right? If a straight couple, if a straight person came in and said, I want a cake for my friend's same-sex wedding, he would refuse, right? So, um, so that, that wouldn't be discrimination against his customers at all, right? So he's saying, I'm not, you know, so they're disagreeing about what counts as discrimination. And they actually agree on a lot of things that a lot of the rest of us also agree about, that you shouldn't discriminate against people for no good reason, right? That you should have some freedom to, you know, if a, if, if a, if a tailor, a black tailor were asked to like take in the robe of a, of a Klansman, like we, we think he should be able to say, actually, I'm going to not do that because um, I don't, I don't, I disagree with your ends. Right, so there's a, there are a lot of, there are a swirling set of values, a lot of which we, we all kind of agree on. And some of, them, some, some of them we disagree on and courts should be constructuring their decisions and encouraging the rest of us to structure our conversations around the narrow things we disagree about so we can talk about them, as opposed to saying, this is a case about, do you care about the value of equality or the value of religious freedom? Because that's not something we can solve. So the greatest thing ever when you're talking to a law professor, and most people find themselves doing this when they're in class or something like that, um, but I haven't been in class in about 15 years, so this is <laughs> going to be a lot of fun for me. Um, uh, the best thing ever is giving real-world examples to a law professor and having them explain the history behind it and why these are complicated cases and um, what the law says. So let's do a little bit of that. I think that would be fun. Uh, the first thing... Um, is the American issue, perhaps the American issue over the last just about 50 years now, and that is abortion. Um, why did the way courts found the right to privacy ultimately lead to an unhelpful dialogue? You say the law is erratic and thus leaves out a chance for compromise on abortion, which is the most it's, it's an issue that few people can find compromise on, but you argue that's because of the legal lingo that has been used and the legal decisions that have been used surrounding it. Well, I think that's part, I think that's part of it, and I think it's an important part of it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a little bit <laughs> on the notion that we, that, we, that we have sort of fundamental intractable disagreement about abortion, insofar as a lot of us a majority of Americans believe that there are some circumstances in which women should be able to have abortions. And a majority of Americans also think that a state's interest in um, promoting the value of fetal life is a legitimate and important interest. Um, and that 
there are circumstances under which the state can legitimately pursue that interest. That's not, so the, the, our, our abortion jurisprudence in the courts has sort of in fits and starts kind of kind of evolved in that direction. But when we start in Roe versus Wade in, the 19, in 1973, this question of is there, a, is there any constitutional value or status to the life and the personhood of the fetus is a question the court answers explicitly. And the court says no. And the reason the court says no, it, the court, Justice Blackman who writes, Harry Blackman who writes his opinion says, well, if you recognize that a fetus has a fetus's life as, as constitutional status, then the case would be over um, because the woman can't possibly win that case. And what I try to do in the in the book is show the, the ways in which that's not true. Um, that in fact, recognizing the value of fetal life is not inconsistent with recognizing abortion rights. Um, and that that's exactly what happens in Germany. In fact, at about the same time as the court forces the legislature to take into consideration both of those things. And once you say that you, you've got to take both those things into consideration, then the, the people who are pro-abortion rights start to say things like, well, um, the way in which you um, value fetal life is not by criminalizing abortion, because that just drives the practice underground. The way you, va the val you value fetal life is to make, give people choices about, um, about termination, right? So make sure that there's robust prenatal care, make sure that there's robust childcare support, make sure that there's robust employment guarantees, um, have an actual safety net so that people make choices, don't support, that you actually support women in their choices. And the anti-abortion rights side, when you tell, tell them you've got to respect women's autonomy, start to say things like, well, how about if instead of you know, doing what they did in Alabama and, and outlawing abortion at six weeks when people often don't know they're pregnant yet, how about we have a different regime in the second trimester than we do in the first trimester? And so you've got to make it available in the first trimester, but in the second, you've got to have some reason, let's say. Um, so um, each side starts to take a slightly different position. They start to modify their position in various ways. And in Germany, there's this grand compromise legislation that is, it, it revolves around that set of kind of compromises as we, we give choices for a longer period of a certain period of time, then it, it gets a little bit harder um, in the second trimester. And at, but at the same time, we've also got to have a bunch of a robust safety net so that people are actually making legitimate choices. This becomes a political conversation and not just one for judges. Whereas in the US, the declaration that fetuses are not of constitutional status actually sp splits apart the anti-abortion movement, which was at the time of Roe is a pretty big tent politically, but within a few years of Roe is not at all a big tent politically and is a, a, a radicalized um, uh, a movement that isn't interested in political compromise at all. Talking about compromise, the next example I want to ask you about is guns. Um, very little compromise seems to be in the offing on that. Um, you argue, and many other professors certainly do, that the founders felt guns, or at least whatever passed for guns at the time, were for the raising of a public army not necessarily for the holders of those guns to defend themselves from someone else with a gun. That, uh, many argue, did, simply did not come up during the debate over the Second Amendment. But how did courts lead us down the path of where we are now, where political solutions um, 
people talk around the edges of them, but they seem to be relatively off the table unless major changes to our system are made and how, um, and how those solutions could be reached. Well, there's a, there's a few pieces to this when it comes to, to guns, right? Which is, as with abortion rights, we, you know, there actually is a, if you were to actually ask people what they would support, it's not the same as the kind of high level political conversation, right? So most people believe that um, people should generally have access to guns, but, um, but that they should be regulated in various ways through background checks and, and so forth. And that's quite, actually quite popular. You can't get that through Congress for various structural um, reasons. Uh, but the, the, other, the other piece of this, right, is that um, we're, and, and actually, this is actually an issue where, where the court has had less of a, is less of the problem. <laughs> um, and I actually don't talk about guns that much in the book, in part for this reason, because I don't think courts have gotten, are, are the reason we've gotten to where we are. But um, ever since the court got involved in this issue, which is pretty recent, in 2008, was the, really the, the first time the court gets seriously involved in Second Amendment questions, the framing of that case is the problematic framing that I'm worried about, which is we spend a lot of time asking about, do you have rights? Mm -hmm. And not a lot of time asking about what does it mean to have rights, right? So the case in 2008 was about the District of Columbia law. Uh, the whole framing of the case, Justice Scalia writes the majority opinion and spends literally dozens and dozens and dozens of pages talking about whether there is a right to bear arms or not. And Justice Stevens, um, dissenting, spends dozens and dozens and dozens of pages trying to refute that. And each of them spent very little time saying, well, what about this law? Like, what, what is this law we're talking about? And, 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 and how does it actually infringe your rights? How much does it infringe your rights? Is there some way of modifying it so it doesn't infringe your rights in the same way? Is there a way of problem solving around this law rather than spending time arguing these kind of high culture issues of whether you have a right to bear arms or not? Justice Breyer actually writes a dissenting opinion in that case uh, that he, he says, I joined Justice Stevens's learned opinion, but I'm also, I want to spend a lot of time saying, well, what, what, how reasonable is this law or, or not? Is it actually pursuing public safety? Is there good evidence for that? Um, I, how much freedom does a gun owner actually have? Um, uh, when they um, encounter this kind of law, is there any special reason in the District of Columbia, which is where this case was, to have a, 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 gun, a gun law that might not apply in, in rural Wyoming, let's say? Um, those kinds of questions, which are the kinds of questions that ordinary people would ordinarily ask about whether something makes sense or not, are, 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 are not asked. And instead, we ask these kinds of, these polarizing questions of, You've got to line up on one side or the other. Is there right, a gun sum. right or not? Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, if I'm a liberal, I'm going to line up reliably on one side of that issue. And if I'm a conservative, I'm going to reliably line up on the other side. But if you ask me, like, do you need to have a trigger lock on your long arms? I don't, you know, like, let's, we can have a conversation about that. As opposed to, do you have the right to the gun itself or not? Yeah, yet? I mean, the, the, uh, this sort of high, these, if you think it's an on-off switch, is there a right or not? And that's the only choices you have. Well, you know, um, the, before we wrap, before we kind of bring this all to a head here and ask why this is all so important, but um, I want to um, go back to that um, concept you and I talked about earlier, which is when does equality begin and when does any, or sorry, when does equality end and inequality begin? Um, and one of the cases you brought up, and, and I love talking to law professors for lots of reasons, but I'm always afraid to try to sum up their arguments because law professors and lawyers hear things better than anybody. 
they they hear things very very well. They they um they their familiarity familiarity with words is is second to none. So I hope I sum this up right. Um, in San Antonio, you you talk about this case. Um, I think it was San Antonio in Texas, an yeah. education case, and judges agreed that um, this is a poor area in San Antonio. Uh, and the school district is really underfunded and the kids have a really tough time in school and there was a lawsuit and the judges agreed as best I can sum it up that they had a right to some education, but not to the best education. Um, I hope I sum that up right, but explain this case and why this is so important for us to understand this zero sum game that lawyers and courts have been playing. Well, the San Antonio case is, is, it might be my favorite example of kind of lawyer brain um, um, and, and how it affects the way you, people look at rights, right? So this is um, a poor school district and a poor neighborhood. Parents in a poor neighborhood in San Antonio are complaining about the school funding formula in Texas because Texas, like, like most states, ties uh, school funding to property taxes. And in the poor neighborhood, they can't raise as much property tax, even if they have a, have a higher tax rate because their tax base is so much um, so much smaller. Um, the, the, the property values are so much smaller. And it and the schools are underfunded and they're falling apart and they've got no air conditioning and they've got like bats you know, nested in the in the classrooms and broken windows and poor textbooks and teachers are, are, are lots of teacher overturn. Uh, and the and the rich district across town like has state of the art everything right and so they say this is unfair this is unequal so you know a nor normal person you know does this violate and this is public school right is this unequal you say well of course it is I mean there's that doesn't necessarily mean you know every school has to have the same state of the art facilities necessarily but we can at least acknowledge that there's inequality here and let's talk about what we're going to do about that the court doesn't see it that way. And the court says there's actually no right to equality in this space. Um, I, and, and the reason, well, first reason the court says that is um, we can't figure out like who holds the right here. Um, I, is, it the, is it poor people? Because we don't actually even know if these people are poor. We just know they live in a poor neighborhood, right? Is it people in a poor neighborhood, right? So just like those kinds of really pedantic um, questions. Well, we, we, didn't, we never really get to the question of does Texas have any good reason to treat some of its citizens as second-class citizens and others not? And what can we do about that? Um, the court spends all of its time talking about, well, is there a right to education? Is there a right to equal education? These kinds of abstract questions. And the court is very explicit, just as Lewis Powell who writes this majority opinion. He's very explicit where he says, look, if we were to say there's a right to education or a right to equal education, that'd be, the, that'd be like saying there's a right to food or to shelter or to, or to housing, lots of things that people are undersupplied. Um, and we can't tell the government to, you know, that would, and, and Powell, you should know, was a, was a virulent, paranoid anti-communist, right? So he's, he's like, this is the end of the capitalist system. Um, when that's absurd, right? It's absurd to say that the consequence of declaring a right is the most outsized, over-the-top judicial enforcement possible. And it comes from this frame of thinking that rights are kind of these absolute things that are assigned to one person or another, as opposed to an invitation to actually talk about the facts of a case. Yeah, like there's daylight between better schools and 
socialism or communism. Right, right. Um, uh, the key part of your book is that the content of the rights are what matters. And, and I, want, I want to have you talk about this idea of campus freedom of speech. Uh, I was actually there. I was at Gainesville covering for the new station I work for, um, the appearance of a white supremacist on campus. And the public was funding not only the, the college, um, you know, the university, the, the public university he was speaking at, but also the time for the police officers to guard everybody and for the right to use a public space for this kind of demonstration and speech. And it was a very tense day and the station sent me there with a security guard and I was very nervous. And um, one of the things you say is that colleges, um, it was kind of like one of these things where the colleges said, you know, we really have no way to keep this person away from campus. We really can't stop this. If they, if they pay the fees, if you know, it's like a, if, if, you, if you pay your way, you're welcome no matter what, um, because this is a public university. And your argument is that colleges should have the right to keep a white supremacist away from campus, even though the term freedom of speech in its barest form, most bare form, I want to be clear, would be compromised. Explain why vetting the content of the right should be more important to judges. So, so that's exactly right. And, and I, there are lots of, as you say, there's lots of examples of this. The one I use is, a, is, is in Auburn where Richard Spencer, who's this white nationalist, um, wants to speak on campus. He gets someone who's not even a student or, a, or an affiliate of Auburn to, to come and, and rent out space on the campus. Students complain. Uh, and, then the, and then the school says, uh, you, can't, you can't speak. And then he sues. And the court says, Look, free speech is is a high value, and you're you're engaging in discrimination on the basis of the content and viewpoint. You just disagree with white supremacists. You got to let them on campus, and I think that that's just the perf a, a, a perfect example of the way in which we just flatten contextually interesting conflicts into just questions of what right is at stake or not. So, if you characterize the the conflict in Gainesville or the conflict in at Auburn as just a question of, well, is there a right to free speech? Well, of course there's a right to free speech. And is Auburn a public university and is the University of Florida a public university? Yeah, they are, right? And so the state has to respect free speech and therefore Richard Spencer wins. But if you ask the question a, a different way, which is should a university administrator, does the constitution require a university administrator to be indifferent to a white supremacist or someone who is an egalitarian. <clears throat> well, they're not in the classroom. They're not in who they admit to, to, to the to University of Auburn, right? If you put in your application on the white supremacist and they reject you on that basis, they're not violating the First Amendment. We, they shouldn't be thought of as violating the First Amendment. <clears throat> you know, educators have a, a public function that is also constitutionally significant. They have their own academic freedom and they also have their own students um, who's in, in who, for whom they serve in local parentis or in, in place of the parent. Uh, and, um, and so we, you know, the, the function that universities play is to, um, is to educate people. And there are a lot of different ways of educating people. You can educate them by ex forcing them to listen to something they disagree with. That's one way of doing it. Or you can do it by curating the materials that are available to them. So part of the argument is Universities should have that freedom, and even if they're public universities, and that that's part of academic freedom as well. Um, and part of it is, 
you know, you've got to give some texture to, to things like free speech, right? So um, a police officer telling Richard Spencer or telling some other white nationalist that, you know, you, you, you go to this park and give this speech, we're going to arrest you. Well, that's a very different situation than a university, which is charged with educating its students and also protecting its students from both psychological and physical harm. Um, telling university that you must make your campus available <laughs> to this person. What's the harm to Richard Spencer if he has to talk in the public park instead of talking on the university campus? Well, the harm is he can't reach the students of this university. Well, student you know, universities curate who gets to reach their students, right? So, um, and, the, and the students can, can go across the street and listen to him speak, right? There's no, so to, to say that that's exactly the same thing and we should treat it in exactly the same way, notwithstanding the university's interest, as you know, the police arresting him in the park um, because they don't like his viewpoint is absurd. Um, and yet here we are. What is the healthy way for all of us in our daily lives to think about the things we have a right to do in the context of our relationship with the state? Well, I think it's perfectly healthy to have a set of commitments, a set of things that you value. In fact, I think part of the import of the book is to say that the state should be more generous in recognizing as rights, the things that we subjectively think of as important to, to having a flourishing life. But one consequence of that is that we can't have all of our rights absolutely at the same time, right? Is that you've got to, they will come into conflict with each other Sometimes people will pursue their rights through the state, through lawmaking, and that will come into conflict with the individual rights of, of people. And so you need a strategy for dealing with that conflict. The conflict itself is perfectly healthy and it's perfectly healthy because we're different from each other and diversity and pluralism are things that I think are valuable um, uh, and part of our strength. But, but the the way you do it is to resolve those conflicts at retail rather than resolving them at wholesale. You resolve those conflicts based on their particular, their particular context, the particular facts, um, particular benefits and burdens, evidence relied on, right? You persuade others that you're right, as opposed to simply position taking and then assigning a judge to choose one position or another. You said, this is a very moving passage of the book. It was a couple of lines, but I was very moved by it. You say that the heroes of our constitutional order have been those who have held out hope that one day the constitution will recognize their pain and make their dreams real. And you cited Martin Luther King and Susan B. Anthony in that passage. Uh, reflect on that. Why did you write those two lines? So I, I, as I reflected on why I wrote this book, you know, part of it is uh, a sense of alienation that I felt. And I, I particularly actually, I think part, you know, I, I'm African-American and I, I've reflected at times on what it is that's so alienating about, you know, originalists <laughs> and saying we have to, the constitution means a certain thing and it means that for all time until, until we get, you know, amended. Um, and the thing it means for all time is the thing that the founders said it meant or believed that it meant. And that's really alienating for, for lots of people because um, being a part of the system, investing in the constitutional system requires some faith or some hope that it will recognize you, your interest, your identity as being part of that system. And 
and if you you know if you tell someone this is what the constitution means it is unchanging um and uh and we the judges have decided what it means and it will mean that until you either get new judges or uh, or amend the constitution that's going to alienate people who are losers in that kind of system um and uh the the what has sustained us over time is people staying invested in the system even when they are losers and the, and so i'm trying to figure out how do you how do you do that you know i think about frederick douglas who maintained as a you know escaped slave and slave person maintained his his faith in the constitution and he maintained his faith in the constitution because he said it can mean something different than the judges are saying it means that i can persuade them that I'm right in a different, in, in some context. And I, I think that that's a very important thing to recover in a pluralistic system, in a pluralistic society where we all have fundamental disagreements with one another, is how do you keep people invested uh, in, the, in the constitution and in this democracy? And you do it by having rights conversations be, or having rights declarations being the beginning of a conversation instead of being the end of a conversation. The beginning of a conversation, because I'm telling you, don't go, you know, one side don't go too far, other side don't go too far. Now, um, now work out your differences, as opposed to saying, you're the winner or you're the loser. Uh, and that's just how it is. That's just what the constitution requires. Um, that's alienating, it's polarizing, and I think there are better ways. Professor Jamal Green, author of How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Certainly check out that book and his Twitter page, at Jamal Green. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.